Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast Post Champions League. I'm with Devitt and Ken Early here. How are you again? Good, how are you? Uh, not bad. A bad night for Liverpool and more signs that the relationship between manager and star striker is far from perfect. If you saw the analogy used by Eamon Dunphy last night, well, I don't know, you might have been as struck by it as I was. He compared Mario Balotelli to a prisoner who was out in parole with Brendan Rodgers as his parole officer <laughs> trying to uh, trying to get him to conform, I guess, to fit into normal society, in this case, Liverpool Football Club, yeah. as they like to call themselves. It seems the parole officer here has decided the best way to get his prisoner to conform is to criticise him through the media by telling him he needs to work a little bit harder. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, I mean, it's difficult to know what to do, isn't it? I mean, if Roberto Mancini did criticise Balotelli a lot, but he also really loved him with a passionate intensity. They loved each other. It was like um, a father-son, a tempestuous father-son relationship. Um, Rogers, I don't think loves Balotelli at all. Yeah, I'm sure he likes him. In fact, I look at Mario Balotelli now, and I wonder if he's sort of waking up today and realizing this is actually the loneliest place my career has taken me to yet. Liverpool. I mean, football club. Before you know, he was at Inter. He was just a little kid at Inter. You know, he he was sort of almost like a mascot figure. Um, you know, he got to, Mourinho never really trusted him, never really used him at important moments, unless he absolutely had to. Um, but he still got to be there at the camp now, you know, with, with Jose Mourinho, arm in, uh, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with Jose Mourinho, making obscene gestures at the Barcelona fans. Well, celebrating to the Inter fans up in the gods, but really it was for the benefit of the Barcelona. You know, being doused by the sprinklers, being part of great moments, never as a key player, but still, you know, was it lonely? There were lonely moments for him on the field, certainly when Juventus fans, <clears throat> excuse me, are chanting things like there are no black Italians and so on. But when he went to City, he uh, again had a manager who had a real um, uh, regard for him. You know, he knew that even if whatever about the squad, whatever, whatever's going on here, whatever people think of me, Mancini 
really does think I'm I'm one of the best players in the world. You know what I mean? It's he had at least that connection. Then when he went back to Milan, it was like, well, here I am. I'm I'm the most famous Italian player. I'm the most high profile Italian player now, and here I am playing for the club that I always supported. You know, and it was like. Again, you know, back back in my home country, you know, there was certain alien aspects of life in Manchester, and maybe I feel more at home. What's he got now? You know, what has he got now? I mean, I know that the you know he's certainly had a welcome from the Liverpool fans and so on, but that's really the almost the least important thing. I don't know if the, the way the manager speaks about him now. I'm not sure. I should clarify though that actually he did say that he worked hard. He just said he needs to do more. So he qualified the hard work. He needs to score. He needs to actually start scoring some goals here. So, you nice. know, the, it, it doesn't even matter if it's Balotelli. It's, somebody needs to score. Uh, you know, it's three wins and nine now, I think, for, for Liverpool. Um, I mean, Rodgers is a bit of a problem because obviously he's annoyed with his Sturridge being injured playing for England. And that is the one little victory he's had in recent, recent days is, uh, is, is uh, sort of twisting Roy Hodgson's arm so as not to pick, pick Daniel Sturridge. Uh, for England, and uh, so he can have a bit of a rest, and um, because he's clearly a player that Liverpool miss, and uh, when he's not there, but um, they did also sign Ricky Lambert. You know, they, they, Balotelli's not the only player they signed, but Ricky Lambert is is not playing. I mean, Balotelli's playing because I mean Lambert is not as good as Balotelli. Mm-hmm. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is heavy. And uh, yeah, he, he. I wonder what it is. I mean, I remember when Rodgers arrived in at Liverpool, he, he immediately got rid of Andy Carroll. I think that's a, that was a, the right move. But, you know, he was quite open about that. At some point, the guy just didn't fit our style. I mean, what's happened with Andy Carroll since proved that it was a, any price they got from him was good because he can't get fit. You know that. You know that's that's a more basic problem. But what Rodgers was saying wasn't. You know, I think I'm not sure how many, how many games Andy Carroll's going to play. It was. I just don't think a player like that fits in with the kind of team that I want. But how does Ricky Lambert fit in with it? You know, I don't, I don't really see that either. He's, a, he's another player. Another kind of strangely pointless signing, as far as I can see. You may have seen her tweets earlier this week about some very exciting Irish Times second captain sponsorship news. If you haven't, we're teaming up with the good people at Rabo Direct, which we're delighted about. Unfortunately, Murph miserably failed to unsquint his eyes for the promotional photograph. I, mean, I, I, I can't quite understand it. The rest of us didn't seem to have an issue with the, uh, with the sunshine, but there you go. Other than that, it's all good. Richie Sadler will be in studio for today's show. We'll have the brilliant Tim Vickery on to talk about FIFA's decision to end third-party ownership in football. Right now, it's time for Ken Early's Report Sport. Yeah, so, okay, I mean, um, we'll start with that little game. We are going to talk to Richie about that, but it was, you know, a really poor performance, uh, the latest in a, in a, a long line of those. Um, and obviously, they, they did lose an important player. I mean, we talked a lot about that. You know, there was plenty of, plenty of talk about that last year where we were suggesting that really he was the... The reason why they were why they had such a good team, this player who's now gone, rather than anything revolutionary which was being imposed on the club by the um, by the coaches and so on and so forth, um, yeah, that, that seems to be the way it looks at the moment. But at the moment, uh, you know, Rogers is, seems to be looking at, seems to be saying, well, the, the coach's power is limited, uh, and he's talking a lot about the time they've spent on the training ground uh, trying to learn how to defend set pieces, you know. Uh, and obviously they conceded another goal from a set piece um, the other day. Skirtle uh, le- letting the ball bounce off the back of his head. And then Mignolet, who is luckless, is saving a ball which the man standing behind him is going to clear if he doesn't save it. And putting it straight in the foot of Marco Streller, 
who uh, who scores. Now he talk, he's talking about the you know defending of set pieces, and apparently this is something they're, they're working on a lot. Rogers at pains to point out how much they're working on it. Is it is it really the best approach to take? Do you think is that the way that you get better at set pieces by practicing defending set pieces? Yeah. Is it a bit direct? Yeah, it is a very direct solution to a very simple problem. Yeah, it's it's a kind of um, it's a bit of, it's a bit blinkered. I think it's a bit sort of okay. This is our problem. Let's fix it. But it's is it is that really the problem? Well, how the, else would you go? The problem this? is the meekness and timidity of all of your players who don't have any confidence anymore. Try and try restoring that, and you might see you might start to see improvements across the board. I'm reminded a little bit here of uh, I mean it's this it's this idea of um, you when you focus tightly in on something like that you say that's our problem you know first of all you're apportioning blame you're making it clear where the blame lies um, not with the collective it's with the defenders um, well most players are back in the box to defend the corner hmm. in this case it was Martin Skirtle who allowed not for the first time yeah. as Roger said um, but is it is it ever really the best way to do it? You know, there's that... Okay, I mean, take, take uh, for instance, uh, Rio Ferdinand. Rio Ferdinand, a man who knows a thing or two about defending, you could say. Um, uh, he talks about uh, the business of preparing to defend set pieces in his book, which is uh, which is out today, actually. It's launched, launched today, I think. Um, he says... Uh, there was also the, now he saw, now he, this is in the course of his, his chapter slaughtering David Moyes, which contains a lot of withering, really withering stuff about David Moyes, who he also describes as practically a perfect human being, like Mary Poppins. Well, he doesn't he doesn't use the analogy Mary Poppins; he doesn't say practically perfect. Um, there was also the business of preparing to defend set pieces. This is under Moyes now. It wasn't something we'd ever spent much time on before. Fergie's approach was always to focus on the other team's weaknesses. We expected to win every game. He'd say things like, they're rubbish in this area. This is how we're going to destroy them. For years, we were one of the best teams at not conceding goals from corners and free kicks. Very occasionally, if a team had a special ploy, we'd do something on that. With Rory Daft's long throws at Stoke, for, for example, Fergie would set us up and ask us, are you comfortable with this? Usually I'd mark Peter Crouch and leave Vida free to attack the ball. Or if it went over Vida, I'd come and attack it. Just simple little things like that. For most games, Fergie would leave the defending to us. We had it down. Our method was simple, effective, something we always felt secure about. Uh, yeah, with Moyes, it was always how to stop the other side. He was worried about other teams' corners and free kicks. For every game, he made a point of showing us videos of how dangerous they could be. On the morning of a game, we'd spent half an hour in the training ground drilling to stop them. But our defensive record definitely did not improve. There was so much attention to the subject, it suddenly became a worry. They must be seriously good at this, to have, to, to have us spend all this time on it. Um, you know, the more and more, the more you focus on one particular facet of the game, it is a small facet of the game, the more every corner becomes a, an event. Oh my God, they've got a corner. Are we, are we all doing exactly what we were told to do? Are we, you know, everyone is kind of a little bit more rigid, a little bit more tense. Is it really the, is it really the way to do it? Uh, I think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can completely work on the confidence of players. And Brendan Rodgers, I think, would like to feel that he does do that, that he gives them confidence, while also walking them in baby steps through um, through defensive routines. Uh, mm. Giovanni Trapattoni, Ken, and every, even when I, when I mention the name, people immediately think of the last two to three years as Ireland manager. But I'm talking about the Giov- Giovanni Trapattoni towards the end of his great club career, and I'm sure right through it was a stickler for this kind of thing and he won a load of trophies with it uh, by just spending hours in the training ground really 
in quite boring, minute detail, going through exactly what the players want to do. And DJ Aman, for one, would say that that's what made him so brilliant. That was individual coaching that he was talking about. That was Trapattoni after training, taking this, taking an individual like Haman, then a wet behind the ears uh, teenager, and saying, "Okay, there's there's a few things you don't know about the game. Number one, like what do you, you know, your team has a throw in. What do you do?" Haman's like, "No, no, no. Stand there, wait for them to throw me the ball." And Trapattoni saying, "No." This is what you do. Okay, I've got to throw in here. What this is what you know, and went through this for hours and hours and hours. But that's individual. That's like, you know, um, teaching a player the basics of the game. I mean, I don't know if Rogers. Maybe Rogers is doing that with Skirtle. Um I'm sure Rafael Benitez, who in retrospect was quite a successful Liverpool manager for a spell, I would imagine he spent quite a lot of time. Although he did get criticised, in fairness, for his. Uh, he was a fan. Wasn't he one of the first zonal? Yeah, it was. It was I mean, he, he used to do zonal marking, which which a lot of the pundits didn't like, and he would always retort, "Well, actually, we we have one of the best defensive records from set pieces, apart from the seasons when they when they didn't. It, it sort of fell apart, you know, for a time." But you know, the point is, you can't you can't let something like this become a complex. I mean, the, the important thing is to sort of restore the um, team's sense of itself, and that's not something which is limited to just one area of the game. I mean, Gerard was talking about you're not going to win a football match if you keep if you keep letting in goals and set pieces. No, That's what Gerard said. But you're not going to win a football match either if in the first minute of injury time, when you get the ball and there's a counter attack and you're Stephen Gerrard, you got the ball at your feet and you can see Raheem Sterling motoring away on the left side and you can see on the right side someone else motoring away. I still away. don't see how working hard on one aspect is damaging other aspects or is decreasing confidence. You made the Alex Ferguson comparison but it's not really a fair comparison because the Alex Ferguson that w- who was there when Rio Ferdinand arrived at Manchester United was very different from the Alex Ferguson in 1986-1987 I'd imagine when he first signed Gary Pallister and Steve Bruce he spent quite a lot of time drilling these guys on exactly what he wanted but by the time Rio was around Ferguson was so bulletproof in what he was doing and the players instinctively believed in him that he didn't really maybe necessarily need to spend as much that time may, That may well be the case in fairness I mean when Rio joined it was already a, a, an established kind of winning machine um, and maybe a lot of the basic work was done or the kind of players who came in were of a level where they didn't really have to worry about that kind of stuff um, still though it, I just think when you look at a, a performance which is all, all round as bad as that to start highlighting the fact that they defended a set piece badly wasn't the only bad thing they did there was a lot of bad things that happened in that game and that's not the only reason they lost there was a lot of factors contributing to the loss I mean if Steven Gerrard had, had stood up and said well look you know, Martin Skirtle let the ball bounce off the back of his head and we've let him a goal set piece. On the other hand, when I was uh, shuffling around in midfield like Hans Molman and passing the ball to the uh, passing the ball to the opponent just when we've got our last counter-attack opportunity of the game, that probably didn't help either. So, you know, we've all got a, we've all got a bit of work to do in the training ground. But that's not what I see. What I see is uh, what I see is Oh, you know, we need to stop stop letting goals and set pieces. Well that and other things. We're gonna talk about Liverpool with Richie Sadler shortly, so let's chat Danny Welbeck in. Well, yeah, Danny, now, do you remember what happened when Caleb Folan came into the Ireland squad? I remember... Steve Staunton's yeah, Steve Staunton endorsement. tried to describe him in very positive terms, but ended up sounding mildly disparaging about his ability. That's maybe unfair on Steve Staunton. What was supposed to be a compliment didn't really sound that complimentary. He runs the channels well. He's, he's not the most pleasing on the eye. He's he's an awkward lad. Yeah, he's not the most. He wouldn't be the most pleasing striker on the eye, and he he doesn't score many goals or whatever. Uh, Arsene Wenger last night on Danny Welbeck. I was surprised how quick he is. Or he said, "I've learned he's a good finisher. Technically, he's very sound." That was a surprise. 
He's technically clean, and he's a good passer of the ball. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't know he was so quick. I knew he was quick, but he can be electric when he starts. He showed that instinct of a goal scorer and was aggressive. <laughs> that was a surprise. <laughs> technically, he's very sad. It's his finger about his £16 million signing. Admittedly, one... He he says wouldn't have signed had Arsene Wenger been on site on transfer deadline day as opposed to in Rome, managing in a charity match for peace organised by the Pope. <laughs> you know he wouldn't have signed. Whether I mean I could never quite work out what Wenger meant by that. Did he mean I was up early and I was that meant I was on you know my BlackBerry all day or whatever it is Wenger uses, uh, and without that it wouldn't have happened or. Does he mean if I'd been there, this wouldn't have happened? That is that is what he said. If I'd been back, if I'd been at home, this wouldn't have wouldn't have happened. Right. But he says uh, uh, he showed that he says uh, he's such good pace it gives them time to finish calm. Once players understand that their finishing improves a lot, it helps always to know you've a good chance to play in the next game. Um, his link-up play is good as well as his work rate. He's a team player, not only a finisher. So it was a great display by Welbeck, who becomes the third Arsenal player to score a hat-trick in the Champions League after Thierry Henry and uh, Bentner. Plus Bentner managed to do it. And I think the sixth English player overall um, to to achieve this. Um, good nights, actually, for a couple of ex-Man United But hold on players. a second, before you get to that, did you not notice the manner in which he executed his third goal again? I would describe it as... I'm going to describe it as something that you think Danny Welbeck... Indulges in a little too much. I would say he chipped the goalkeeper. Oh, I wouldn't say he indulges in too much. I'd say that's his uh, that's his signature move. Mm. You know, Danny Welbeck, Ariel Ortega, uh, Dejan Savicevic. There's a few players who who well, like to chip. Raúl to an extent. Yeah, he, uh, he. If you seriously, if you look at Welbeck's best goals, they're all chips. But you just think he does it too much. Anthony. No, I don't think he does. It too oh, much. that was another conversation we had a few weeks ago after he no, missed one we, in his first game. No, there was this. There was he tried this, to chip it over the goal. He chipped it over um, Joe Hart. Hit yeah. the post. No, we what we were talking about was David Moyes telling him uh, when you get through a Neuer, put it low. Oh, right. Okay. You know, and which which I think goes against the grain of of what he tends to do. If you remember, he ended up executing this ridiculously bad chip. Um, which seemed to me like a player caught in two minds, you know. Oh, you know, I know what to, I know what to do here, and then suddenly, oh, but uh, oh no, no, definitely did. that wasn't good. That wasn't a good outcome. Um, so anyway, Arsenal cruising along um, as ever uh, through the Champions League. Um, unlike Manchester City, who as ever are failing, uh, drawing one all at home to Roma, and this is after they um, kind of goaded Francesco Totti or whoever was managing their Twitter account just sent this ridiculous tweet like to Roma oh great to welcome you and a great player like Totti he's never scored in England has he and Roma tweeted back you know this is like inter-club yeah you know I don't know what you'd even call this I'm reluctant to say the word you know but anyway uh, Panther yeah I was reluctant to say (laughs) the word Roma uh, say yeah you know he hasn't our Capitano has never scored in England but there's always a first time for everything and (laughs) Obviously, Francesco Totti becomes the oldest player to score in the uh, Champions League. And it was just such a, a kind of bloodless performance again for Manchester City, which I can't understand because this, the, you know, the league to a certain extent fell into their lap last season. You know, they, they made it, they weren't ruthless last season. It wasn't like the 2012 side that won it, which was, I think, a really good, really uh, focused side for, for much of that season. The last season there was a few slip ups, but well, there were their opponents made a couple uh, more slip ups than they did. A little bit nostalgic about that 
2012 team. I mean, they, they they were slipping up all over the place. Once they got the once they got to the, I suppose you could say the same thing. The the 2014 team closed it out quite well, but um, you know, well, no, there was the Sunderland. Anyway, look, let's not get bogged in the minutiae of that. But they did. I, I thought, okay, this team, yeah, okay. the thing this team has left to do is to win the Champions League. That's the yeah. big target for them. Surely, these games are, should be the big events for them. Um, and yet, you just don't really sort of get that sense from them. Now, there's, it obviously has to do maybe with the becalmed form of Yaya Toure. The becalmed form of the Manchester City supporters also, who were criticised by Paul Scholes, amongst others, for not we're, being there for a start. Yeah, I mean, they were criticised by, and I've seen it pointed out, by multimillionaire Paul Scholes and multimillionaire Rio Ferdinand for not turning up for a um, for a uh, expensive Champions League game. I mean, someone had written an article um, which I saw, which made the good point, I thought, that this is related, in a sense, to financial fair play. If you're going to have financial fair play rules, then a knock-on effect of that is is increasingly expensive tickets, you know, because the clubs have to... Like, for instance, Manchester City, if there was no financial fair play rules, could let everyone in for a fiver. Wouldn't be a problem. Full houses every week. Full houses all week if they wanted, you know? Five five pounds, not a problem. Because the but because they are in are in a position where they need to generate their own income by the, the legitimate means that you you know, UEFA's prescri- prescribed legitimate ways of generating income rather than just subsidized from the Gulf. Um the you know, the ticket prices are gonna be as expensive as they can think they can get away with. And maybe maybe they they were a little bit too expensive the other night. You know, I mean, Champions League group games are often not very good. You I know think it's I mean? a little strange, given that City were out of it for so long. This is a level, it's a different stratosphere to what most City supporters have seen for most of their lives. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe they just prefer the Premier League. Maybe they don't really care that much if they how well they do in the Champions League, or, or maybe their tickets are just a little bit too pricey, as you say. But you wanted to mention Torre. I just pulled you away from. Well, that. company is, is defending him. You know. Um, you know, we've had a tough start because we played tough teams. The point is, though, that he has been the player whose level has fallen off most obviously. And given that he was their best player last season, that's very damaging to the team. You know, um, he had a had a part to play in the goal that they conceded, um, which was the usual kind of fault in his play that has become more obvious in the absence of all the goals that he was scoring. You know, all the goals that he was scoring and creating when he is. Uh, shambling back effectively you know he's not interested in really defending he's a big guy it's tiring it's tiring to chase back he didn't chase back so he leaves uh, Vincent Company exposed Company steps out and Toddy steps in so um, the best game of the round was definitely Barcelona or Paris Saint-Germain against Barcelona um, who having not conceded a goal all season in the league let in three um, to Paris Saint-Germain who didn't have Zlatan in the team uh, and who look like a pretty good team now. And the amazing thing about this game was David Luiz. David Luiz, the figure of, of of ridicule, reminding everybody that actually he is quite good. You know, people, I know that there was the 7-1, wasn't great, really wasn't good. I mean, a lot of people said it was the worst performance ever by a defender in the history of football. I mean, I think I think Tim Vickery said that. Right. He's, you know, the worst performance ever any defender has ever given. But does that necessarily, you know, on the one swallow makes a summer, one swallow doesn't make a summer principle, does giving the worst performance ever 
by a defender in the history of football make you a bad defender? Or does it just make you the kind of man who's capable of extremes? Um, David Luiz gave a brilliant performance for PSG against Barcelona. By the end, the crowd were cheering his every touch of the ball. Um, and he was he had become a hero. He was looming over the other players. They were running around his ankles, peeping about, the little <laughs> men peeping about. And David Luiz was a colossus, bestriding the Parc des Princes. And, uh, which I thought was good to see because, um, you know, I mean, you can sometimes hate on a guy a little bit too much just yeah. because he has a bit of a meltdown in an important game like a World Cup semi-final. doesn't necessarily mean that he's completely worthless. The other thing to note about Danny Alves has said uh, today that he is, uh, this is his last season at Barcelona. And he is, I am moving to England next year. I'm going to play in the home of football. So it sounds as though somebody has offered Danny Alves a, a big payday. He's 32 um, in May next year. Spurs? Spurs, maybe. I don't know. Liverpool, maybe. They don't really have a, well, they've got Manquillo, who's only on loan, Johnson. Um, I don't know who else. I mean, 32. I don't know why. Danny Alves. Spurs. I'm just thinking more of the stature of club. I'm thinking it might not quite be Man City. Um, no, I, w- I can't imagine it, w- or, I can't imagine it would be. Manchester City have Zabaleta, who's a definitely a first team yeah. right back. All right, Adam Canary's report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Richie Sadler has called into the studio. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? Not too bad at all. Better than Liverpool are tonight. Stephen Gerrard, or today I should say, says that they were too soft and didn't want it enough last night. Um, is that what you want from your captain? To be slammed in public? <laughs> they didn't want it enough. I, I, I was watching the game and I did get that impression that there was just a flatness about the whole thing. Oh, yeah, but for, for your captain to say you're, that. You're saying whether Gerrard was right to come out and say that. Yeah. But I think he was correct in what he said. I, I, I don't think there's any harm in coming out and saying that because really? I don't think you're going to get that kind of honesty from, from the manager um, who is generally relentlessly positive in his in his outlook on, on Liverpool's performances. But um, I think whether it's right for Gerard to say it or not, I think the greater worry is that it was true. Like They just look so short of like comparisons with last season. And I know the obvious starting point in a chat like this is to say you know they're missing Suarez's goals or, or but but they were so bad like individual mistakes at the back they're defending now the defending wasn't great last year but they were particularly bad last night they did not really offer much in midfield or have any kind of ideas and Balotelli was leading their line who like y- you're in a very weak position if you go into a European game with him up front mm. let's talk about Balotelli again mm. Well, I mean, it seems to me like Rogers was throwing Balotelli under the bus a bit last night because he said, um, you know, he'd be judged on what he scores. He hasn't scored, but he is working hard. You think that was throwing him under a bus? He needs to do more. Well, it, by Brendan Rogers' standards, it is. By Brendan outstanding <laughs> Rogers, you know, we, the charisma in our game was amazing. Our, our quest will be relentless, Rogers, to say he needs to do more and he'd be judged on what he scored and he hasn't scored sounds a little bit like 
don't blame me. It wasn't my idea to sign Marabella Teddy. Three weeks before he arrived, I categorically denied he'd be joining this club. I mean, Roger didn't say that. It's just it sounds a bit like that in Brendan Rogers speak. Do you think so? Well, I don't know. I mean, just for a guy, as you said, he's relentlessly uh, positive. Um, he, he wasn't too positive about old Mario. I think who, it was... who, who remember hasn't played that many games, you know. I mean, mm. he's he's. You could say he's still settling in. I'm sure you, you look around and you point at all the other players who are playing badly, and you say, "Well, Markovic needs time to settle in. Lalana needs time to settle in. Moreno was on the bench last night. He needs time to settle in." But Balotelli apparently is in a different category. No, I, don't know. I think you're being a little bit harsh there. But on the Balotelli thing, I think. I, I was amazed they signed him. And I remember at the time people were saying, well, for the fee that's involved, it's not that big a gamble. And you couldn't really knock him for bringing him in. But I think, I really think the fee is irrelevant. Like, if you, you say you approach last night, now Balotelli by no means was the standout bad player last night. He wasn't. There was loads of players who played poorly. But he's the centre forward. He's in your team. So once he's there, you're expecting certain things of him. So it's irrelevant what his wages are or, or what you paid for him in the summer. He's going to let you down. And and like he, he will consistently and reliably let you down. Um, a load of his performances... I remember at the weekend watching the, the, the Derby game and afterwards people were giving him a lot of praise for... I think he ran back a couple of times and dispossessed Everton players or something. He was getting great praise for his workload. And I was just thinking, can we raise the bar a little bit? This is a Liverpool centre forward, a full international, an Italian international. Let's not start getting excited just because he's showing a bit of a willingness to work. Like he's taken the place of, of a fella who, Suarez's goals aside, worked an enormous amount and 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 was pivotal. The way the way Suarez played with, with pressing defenders and closing people down, that kind of had a knock-on effect with everyone else, and and it was pivotal in how Liverpool played. Balotelli does none of that. And and you knew before he signed he wouldn't do that. And Rogers keeps going on about the importance of the team and the group. Balotelli has never, from the distance that I've been looking at him, gives the impression that he's an, even aware of his role within the group. Because that does his own thing. And you, you, at best you try and facilitate that or accommodate that. Rogers after the game was... Um, well, I don't know if he, he didn't bring this up, but it was brought up to him that it, apparently he had asked... Uh, Balotelli to go and applaud the away supporters. This is something that some journalists seem to notice. Mm. And Balotelli refused to do it and mm. went back into the dressing room instead. Well, I haven't seen exactly what Balotelli did or didn't do there, but that's you know that's the kind of thing that sometimes happens. I mean, for instance, I was at that Dortmund-Arsenal game a couple of weeks ago and I saw quite a similar scene with Alexi Sanchez, who was walking straight off the pitch. Jack Wiltshire, um, obviously English line art, um, well aware of all the rituals that surround this uh, particular situation, puffed his chest out and was going to front up. You know, he's like Martin Johnson. He's fronting up. Yeah, you know, played terribly, lost the game, but I'm going to front up and go over, uh, clap the fans really ostentatiously to show my passion. But Alexis Sanchez, unfamiliar with this, um, you know, uh, yeah. custom, I don't know, uh, he was just walking off. And Wilshire sort of, you know, indicated to him, well, you know, what he's he's clapping their hands above his head and then to Alexis Sanchez. Oh, look. So Sanchez made a half turn, sort of glanced at the stand, clapped once and continued walking <laughs> off. Now, was that worse than what Balotelli did or didn't do? Funny I, you brought up Arsenal because the famous one last year was Mesut Ozil. 
yeah. who uh, was really raked over the coals by uh, Murdersacker. Murdersacker, yeah. For something quite similar. Another I, man who I, understands that. He's, see, you know, you, what do you notice about all these situations? Ozil? Sanchez, Balotelli, these are the guys who are walking off. They're the luxury foreign players. They're the talented players, right? Whereas Mertesacker is the kind of guy who knows that if he doesn't clap the fans after every game, <laughs> he's the kind of guy who has to clap those fans. You know? that's an, he's, he's a guy who knows that he can't afford to walk off that field without clapping the fans. And so, you know, maybe Mesut Ozil reckons, well, look, I'll be back in the Am team, I reading right? too much into it by seeing this as anything from Balotelli. I don't even know if I do. It's just something uh, I, I read this morning I thought I'd bring up. It's, it's, it's not nothing from Balotelli. It's the kind of thing that gets mentioned because the player played bad. Richie, nothing. He was, he was asked to go over and he, denied, and he well, refused. Well, Is that the story? Well, that's the story, but I mean, nobody knows exactly. I, 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 I didn't say, I can't yeah, clarify no. exactly whether he, whether he did and Alexis Sanchez and gave one clap as he was According to the report I read, he didn't. He just went straight down the tunnel. Would it surprise you if he did? Would it surprise you if that's absolutely true? It wouldn't surprise me at no, all. It not surprise me at all. I'm not sure how big a deal it is, except in the sense that I suppose you're a new player. Maybe you need to curry a bit of favour with supporters. He's curried plenty of favour. I mean, you see him on uh, Twitter, you know, he's been l- lolling at Man United, posting videos of himself <laughs> inhaling helium. He's a very gifted, uh, you know, social mar- uh, social media marketer. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's. I think he's curried enough favour. Um, he just needs to play a bit better. I think that's the key thing, yeah. clapping fans aside, though, though they're, it just does seem like an un an unnecessary thing for him to do which will draw a little bit more criticism from some quarters now whether those quarters are right to be bothered by the fact that he didn't applaud them is another thing but those little things like, it's just an, a, a cumulative effect with this fella and it's just going to keep going because he that's his track record he just doesn't seem to get certain basic things his track record is also that he has talent and can score mm. goals and can contribute in Manchester City on City's his day case. some days he's awesome and is that not enough to give you any pause for thought for later in the season because Jamie Carragher also was what do you say again I can't help the way I feel about him yeah which is not good not good and a lot of people feel um, I would say not good about but, him but you know I mean his maybe his talent as well is overstated because you know there was a statistic there 63 his last 63 shots in the league one goal it's not very good is it it's not that's Stuart Downing it's not territory that. Um, you know and and Okay, he he obviously uh, is a guy who was who who was kind of born with all the attributes, you know, of strength and speed and um, pretty good technical ability. But he's also uh, smokes probably more than most elite players. <laughs> I don't know how far I can go with that one, but you know, when you see a guy smoking all the time, you're kind of like, well. You are supposed to, you are a very highly paid professional athlete. Should you really be doing that? I mean, if you're not doing that, then what else are you not doing? I mean, there's loads of videos about, you know, Balotelli in training. Everyone else is doing press-ups. He's, he's lying there, not doing press-ups. You know, he's a, he cuts a few corners. So eventually, it catches up with you. You know, he's, he's never catch up with him because he's, what, 24? He, until now, he's been 21, 22, 23. You, you know, you're naturally strong. And the age that he's at now is when you start to lose that a bit. And you have to kind of maintain it by work. But I think that would wind up your teammates if if you're playing the way he currently is playing. There's there's obviously there's a lot of examples that you, you allow cer- certain amount of leeway to the really talented lads because they'll do the things that you just can't. No matter how many press ups you do, you know you can't do what this fella does, and and you leave him off. But I, I don't think Balotelli over a consistent period gives the kind of performances which a squad of players would kind of look left and right in the dressing room. Mm. Well, do you know what? We'll leave him off for saying that or doing that or not doing that because 
next week he'll probably be the reason we'll win yeah. he's not he's not he's not doing enough good things on the pitch for you to 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 tolerate the the nonsense or or the the, the not working or the the impression that maybe he just doesn't really appreciate the importance of the game because he's not trying a leg at times or he's not doing the basic things you would expect the centre forward to do. You probably want your centre forward. I, I, I go back to years ago, I remember speaking to John Giles about Alan Smith, who was playing well at the time for Manchester United up front and a uh, very limited footballer, probably Alan Smith compared to the guys we're talking about. But Giles said that the way he defended from the front and, and his sort of personality was something that can actually galvanise a team that other guys can get behind. So leaving the talent element out of it almost entirely, if you just take Suarez compared mm. to Balotelli, he has the Adam Smith quality mm. of working really hard. And I, I would imagine the most important thing probably is not really what supporters think or anybody else thinks. It's what the team, his teammates mm. think. And he certainly doesn't strike as the kind of guy that people will be sitting around and dressing thinking... Well, he's going to he's going to lead us from the frontier. He'll defend from there, and we all get behind him. Whereas Suarez, I'm sure it was unspoken. You just knew, like this guy was. Aside from scoring goals, mm-hmm. I mean, just the actual the, the dynamism of the mm-hmm. play is that important? Yeah, which which makes it more of a, a surprise to me as to why they signed him because he's never done that. He's never done that. He's never shown that in his game. And and the way Liverpool play, Rogers was always talking about the importance of pressing and and defending from the front, as you were saying. And and Balotelli doesn't do that. Um, there was an incident last night. I remember watch, watching the game. Sterling, probably Liverpool should have had a penalty given away yeah. against him in the just first bef- half. And uh, they just started the second half. Just before they let in the goal, yeah. the goal came from the and, next and, corner. And if you if you wind the tape back about ten seconds, the goalkeeper, um, the Basel goalkeeper, had the ball at his feet, and Balotelli was sprinting up to close him down. Now, from a distance, you might look at him and go, "Well." Well, that's actually really good, he's closing down. But no one else was doing it. Mm. Everyone else in the midfield, they were about 20 or 30 yards behind him. Now I remember playing up front, and if I did any kind of closing down, and I looked around and no one else was doing it, you go, well, lads, what, what the hell am I, why am I the mug here? What the hell am I doing? Now, so we were looking at it last night going, well, who, who's, who's out of sync here with what Rogers wants? Does Rogers want them all to press, or does he want them to back off when the keeper has it? Mm. And irrespective of what that answer is, the team are doing two different things. Yeah, so that's the play into this. You know, people say Liverpool look a bit disjointed or whatever. Last night there was loads of examples of that. You're sitting there going, well, what does Rodgers want from Balotelli? What's his instructions been? Yeah. Let alone whether Balotelli follows them or not. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, like you were saying about Rodgers, he's, he's always positive, but he seems there's a certain kind of Mayor Quimby-ish quality <laughs> creep, creeping into some of his... Uh, <laughs> Slightly darting so. eyes from side to side as he answers questions about what's going on. And he says things like, for instance, last night, um, disappointing to concede that goal, especially after all the work we've done on the training ground. So sort of uh, just uh, just to make the point, we have uh, worked on that issue, that set-piece issue. I've done all I can. you know. But you have to do it on the field. That's what he then said. You have to do it on the field. In other words... Players have got to stop learning. Are you parsing every single Brendan Rodgers sentence here, though? No, for some well, I, I think I think Brendan Rodgers is a good communicator. He knows what he's saying when he says this stuff. You know, he's saying, "Look, I've I've done my bit." There's a lot of that from him lately. There's there is. A, there's that comment that you know we we worked on this in the training ground. Another way of saying, "Well, I've done my job," or the thing on you know the 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 jersey's too heavy on some of these lads. Again, you're pointing to the failings of the players, or and he was pointing talking recently about you know we're making too many individual mistakes. It's another way of saying, no, it's not my coaching, it's not my system. The fault lies with what the lads do individually on the pitch. Mm. Um, 
that's going to change because now all the questions are going to start going well Roger we, we, we've seen these mistakes again and again this season and if we're to be honest we look back to last season defensively they're all over the shop as well the and tactic they had last season was Suarez yeah and I mean last season he actually explicitly said I think it was after the Swansea match where they let in three goals they won 4-3 the kind of typical type of game they had in hmm. the second half of last season uh, and he and he started you can't coach this this is individual errors you know the, the mistakes the goals that we're letting in you know, it's it's not a coaching problem. I mean, he, he did specifically say that. And that was when things were going really well. Mm. So I look at it now and I'm thinking, I saw Sacco, you know, Mamadou Sacco walks out of the squad, or rather is dropped from the squad and then walks out before the Everton match on the weekend, goes home before the yeah. game. Um, not a good sign, really, is it? No. Now now he's left with Skirtle, who Skirtle was obviously the man responsible for the, for the goal, well, one of those responsible for the goal, he doesn't really have anyone else that he can put in there now, though, does he? I mean, what I wonder about this is: Do you think? Do you? Do you would you? How big a deal? First of all, is that psycho thing? He was dropped from the squad, so he went before a kickoff. I, 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 I've like that. I've been in clubs that's happened before, and, and generally, obviously, the player is fined. You admit you're wrong. You, you get your rollicking, and and you move on from a distance. Though we're sitting here going, well, if that. Is that a glimpse of what's actually going on? Is the is the real issues within the squad? Rogers kept saying what a happy, joyous group they were last season, what a brilliant environment it was for the young lads to flourish, the experienced lads to do what they were doing. But I, I, it's hard to tell from a day. It could be just your man on a bad day and say, listen, I'm out of here. And everyone in the squad rounded on him, said, that's absolutely appalling, don't do it again. And now he knows and he'll never do it again. If that's the reaction, when they say, well, that's not really that big an issue. No, the most likely reaction is... Uh your first, uh, I think your, your initial hunch there that he probably goes back, he has to apologise. Yeah. Mm. The players don't even probably get involved in it. Although Rogers does strike as the kind of manager who might want him to apologise in front of the in front of yeah. the group, which mm. is never great for a player to have to do. Well, you never know. I mean, we, we don't know. We, we don't know that. But I mean, you know, it's obviously, it's not good. I mean, the players at fault, players shouldn't do that. But, um, you know, at the same time, maybe the players are going to go, hang on a second, I made a mistake against West Ham, sure. But I'm not the only one in this dressing room to have made an important mistake which lost us an important game. There have been a few mistakes around here in the last uh, few months. I do think just to round things out here, Richie, that Rodgers, uh, he had Suarez fine, but it was still a fairly good achievement to get so close to winning a league title last year. Have you lost faith in him entirely this early in this season or did you even ever have faith fully in him in the first place? I'm not sure what you mean by faith. I, 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 I'm not sure I... Well, that he's one I, of the best managers in the Premier League. Yeah, I'm not sure the success Liverpool had last season was a direct result of what Brendan Rodgers brought to the table. Um, it, it, it was like they defended poorly and like you said in the 4-3 game, they, they, they got away with it because they had a world-class player up front. I think within the dressing room now, there must be a, a, an issue of morale there. Like if you're... Gerard must know like all the senior players whoever's been there whatever length of time that last season was their chance yeah that that if it and they got to within three games of doing it and we all we know how it finished but they must have sat there at the end going right we'll never get that close again then the best fella leaves and the replacements no headline grabbers there and any of the lads that came in so yeah. if you're looking to build on what they achieved last season I, I, I don't think that the signings that were made will allow them to do that but I never thought Rodgers was the kind of I just didn't put it down to Brendan Rodgers and he's got a hell of a job now particularly because all the questions are going to be on him and his management 
Yeah. Well, you're. I think you're uh, of a like mind with Ken here on the Rogers question. Richie, thanks so much for coming in. Cheers, lads. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight someone. John Hayes I'm talking about, Aaron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. A few days ago, maybe we're happening too much at this stage about... Um, well, considering I, I accused you again of maybe parsing every single Brendan Rodgers sentence to try to find some deeper meaning, I probably shouldn't even bring up these quotes, but these are from a few days ago where they were presented almost as though Balotelli can be world-class. But really what he's saying is Balotelli is not world-class at the moment, which I wouldn't say Balotelli likes hearing. Uh, there's no comparison between the two players, Balotelli and Suarez, Rodgers said. Hmm. Uh, we shall see, he said, when asked if Balotelli was the player to replace Suarez. I mean, he's already bought him, or somebody at Liverpool has already bought him, so he actually is the player to replace Suarez. Mm. And now it's up to In Rogers. the literal sense, yeah, he has replaced <laughs> Suarez. <laughs> Whether he is the right man, we shall see. I mean, yeah, I think it's something that we we had talked about uh, before on his his uh, the fact that he is they're really opposites. I mean, to Suarez, this is the most important thing in the, in the world, and to Balotelli, gives the impression that it's just something he does. <laughs> one of the things it's one of the things about Atelier's world we've got another new edition of the podcast ready for you featuring Kilkenny's Jackie Tyrrell talking about his 8th All-Ireland we also got into a few specifics with him on the criticisms that he faced this year this is a theme running through a lot of the post All-Ireland analysis not even by people outside the camp a lot of the Kilkenny players have brought it up unprompted that they've been criticised and that that, that may have galvanised them in some way I did actually prompt Jackie on it but he seemed happy enough to talk about what people were saying about him and what effect that that had on him. So you should have a listen to that if you do get a chance. Tim Vickery is on now, Tim, to talk about FIFA's decision to announce that third-party ownership is to be banned in football worldwide. I mean, I'd imagine, does, it, does this affect Brazil more than anywhere else in the world? No question about it. This is a, this is a huge bomb going off uh, underneath the financial model, which Brazilian football especially, but also Argentine, have kind of stumbled across over the last few years, really because of, of, of two developments, I think. Um, the first was uh, the introduction of freedom of contract for the players, and the second was the opening up of the international market in footballers, um, where especially Brazilian football, you know, tran- uh, transferring over a 1,000 players a year abroad. Uh, and uh, we've got an industry there where, and, and football will always be a strange business because the, the object is not profit, the object is title. So it's always going to be operate kind of at the limit. But uh, in contemporary Brazilian football, the game operates really at a loss. But there's one thing, there's one aspect in that chain that makes a profit, and that's the sale of players to Europe. So uh, what investors have done over the course of the last 20 years is take advantage of this, take advantage of the weak position of the clubs in order to gain a percentage of the thing that makes a profit, promising young players, which means, of course, that when those players are sold, the money leaves football. The money goes into private hands of investors and agents. And even if 
There are a number of, uh, of, of regulatory problems with third-party ownership of the possibility of, of, ma- of match-fixing and money laundering and, and conflicts of interest and so on. But even if you regulate all of those out of existence, you're still left with this central truth about third-party ownership that what it is essentially is asset stripping. It's people outside football getting their hands on and making a profit from the one link in that chain that makes a profit. Why uh, have the football clubs in Brazil and elsewhere been so keen to uh, let the one link in the chain that makes a profit fall into the hands of other people? It's called desperation. It's called having to meet your wage bill. Um, We're just coming up now in uh, four or five days to wage bill time in Brazil. uh, Wages are usually paid on the 5th. And our other clubs just simply don't have the money to do it. Now, if they don't play their, pay their, their players for, for three consecutive months, those players can, can become free agents if, if, if they want. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the clubs could lose all of their assets in that sense. So they need to make the wage bill. How do they do that? Well, they're in trouble financially, so the first thing that they do is go and knock on the door of, uh, of, of likely investors and, and, and say, do you want to buy 20% uh, of, of our, our, our bright young player, and that gives them the money to get through this wage bill. Well, essentially what they're doing that way is they are safeguarding the very short term, but they are jeopardizing the long term, because uh, when that player is eventually sold, they don't see the money. And hence the fact that the, uh, the, the FIFA investigation panel, who looked into this and, and, and recommended the ban, um, said that uh, because of third-party ownership, a number of clubs are getting into a cycle of debt and dependence. Tim, Brazil is this gigantic uh, country uh, with a growing economy, or at least an economy that was growing pretty fast until recently, um, a massive uh, potential television market, uh, and obviously everybody there is really interested in football. So why is it that uh, the, so many of the clubs are so desperate that they have to you know, um, give away their most prized asset or, or sell off shares in it before they have a chance to sort of... Um, uh, to, to get the money themselves. What, what's the cause of the kind of chronic bankruptcy or chronic desperation uh, of these clubs? Well, the, the, the industry, the football industry in Brazil is, is operating ludicrously short of, of its potential inside a, a, an entirely antiquated structure, a structure that hasn't accompanied either the progress made that you mentioned in Brazil or the, the international developments to, to, to what is a global game. Um, it doesn't really acknowledge the structure of Brazilian football, doesn't really acknowledge the fact that there is an outside world and that the, the big Brazilian clubs are competing with the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Milan and Manchester United for the best players. So uh, the, the way that Brazilian football is run, control is in the hands of those who control the small clubs. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very much a heightened reality of what happened in English football prior to 1992, when you had 92 professional clubs, one club, one vote, so the vote of Workington Town is worth the same as the vote of Manchester United. What did you have in that situation? Essentially, the big clubs um, forced forced to subsidise all of of the little ones. Um, That happens to a far, far greater extent in in Brazilian football. Uh, And um, the, the, the sad thing, really, is that the big Brazilian clubs are so still stuck simply in a structure that doesn't serve their interests. A ludicrous calendar which overloads them with meaningless games and prevents them from, from competing with players um, with the, the, the big European clubs. Uh, my hope is that the end of third-party ownership will 
end the easy money that they've become addicted to and force them, finally force them, to sit down and confront the hard choices. Because it is a hard choice. To break away from the established structure is a hard choice. It took the English clubs a while to do it. There was all, all the talk of a, a breakaway Super League for, for 10 years before, before it actually happened. It's not an easy decision to take, but it's one which has become well overdue in Brazilian, in, in Brazilian football. A, a total restructuring is long overdue. And there's one group of, uh, of people who are well aware of this, and that's the players especially those players with top-class European experience because they've seen a model of football that works or that works far better than the way it's, it's done in, in Brazil. And really, we're, we're in a situation now where the, uh, those veteran Brazil play, Brazilian players with European experience, they understand much more about how to run the industry than the people who actually run it in Brazil. Um, the, the, the baffling aspect so far is that it's, the, it's the, the players who are doing the hard work and the clubs who would be the principal beneficiaries from a restructuring haven't done anything. Perhaps the day that the clubs do something is now closer because they, they, in, in, over the course of the next three or four years, with third-party ownership being phased out, the easy money is gone. They will now be forced to take the hard decisions. Is that a little bit optimistic, though? I mean, those the the powerful people in Brazilian football that you talk about, all these different heads. I mean, the the amount of people that are involved, even in the on the board, on the the, the board in the uh, Brazilian Federation, there insane numbers of people, unbelievably vast country, and you know, you're, what you're looking for is uh, almost a player driven and then club driven revolt against these people. Will they not just be crushed? Will the clubs not be crushed by the the various uh, parts of the federation around the country? I might well be being optimistic here, but um, we're at a situation here with the players' protest movement that had you asked me about this five years ago, I would have said it was was unthinkable. So change has has happened. uh, And the the, the simple truth about the way that um, the domestic Brazilian football is run at the moment, that it's, it's run by people who control clubs who effectively have no supporters. So if, if it's put to the test, the power of the, of, of the establishment, if you like, is absolutely hollow. The real power is with the clubs. And the clubs have, uh, some of the big clubs, have more supporters than, uh, than, than Ireland has a population. Mm. That gives them a huge power, not only politically, but also economically. Because, uh, as you mentioned, um, Brazil's economic boom, um, we've, uh, the middle class has grown enormously over the last 10, 15 years. There are people consuming now who couldn't consume a couple of generations ago. And the uh, use of football, um, mass market companies, they want to use football to get in touch with, uh, with, with these people. So if the clubs really want to make a change, they have... They can flex those muscles. And I believe that the established system is really based on weakness. And with a little bit of effort, I think it can be swept away without too much trouble. Yeah. But the hard part is that little bit of effort, and especially joint effort. This is where things are often so complicated in Brazil. It's not a society that works together particularly well. And the structure of the clubs, and the clubs are not set up as business, businesses. The clubs are, uh, are social membership organizations where the club president is an elected position. Now, the easiest way to play this elective game, game inside the clubs and be elected president is, uh, is, 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 is to be seen to despise your local rivals. When really in football, 
your local rivals are your partners. You need your local rivals. You need to sit down with your local rivals. So the structure of the clubs does indeed make this harder than was the case in England, where the clubs could get together from a business perspective and make the changes that brought about the Premier League. Yeah, I suppose at the same time, given the obvious potential for a sort of Premier League in Brazil and the vast quantities of money that these clubs would make, maybe that might be a force um, compelling them to, 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 you know, to work together. But I wonder, Tim, if you think that would be absolutely a good idea. Because even in England, I'm sure there's plenty of people who still kind of resent the formation of the Premier League, the breakaway by the richest clubs. You know, it's anti-democratic, it's anti-egalitarian, it's anti a lot of the, a lot of cherished uh, principles, um, maybe slightly left-wing principles, uh, but you know, it, it was certainly um, the richest clubs deciding to get even richer at the expense of everybody else, uh, and maybe it wasn't good for, for everybody else. I mean, you seem to think that if this was to happen in Brazil, it would be a net positive for, for the game there. Well, the game is a shambles at the moment. So it's difficult to see who really benefits from the way things are at the Apart moment. from third-party owners. Oh, yes, well, definitely, definitely. They certainly benefit, um, and they will, they will look to defend the, 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 the model that they've created. Um, I think you, you've raised some, some excellent points about the, the transformations of the, to the, um, the, the Premier League, and I, I would certainly agree with, with many of them. And, and in, in many ways, things have clearly gone too far in terms of ticket prices. Um, it, it pains me to see that the clubs... Uh, become toy things of, of, of billionaires, and that, 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 that pains me. So from my point of view, certainly there, there have been exaggerations. But on the other hand, if I compare the game, and I'm old enough to remember the, uh, the, the old days of the 70s and so on, if I compare it now with then, for all of the flaws of now, I would still take now. It's easy, I think, to have a, a rose-tinted view of, what the old days were like in in England, but we had, you know, English football was 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 killing people on an industrial scale because of lack of investment in in, in the stadiums. Um, yes, many people have been priced out, but average crowds are much higher these days than they were then. Um, so they've been more they've been more than replaced. If you look around the crowds these days, they're racially much much more diverse than they were then. Um, the pitches are much better. The quality of football played, I think, is much, much better. So uh, even I, who I would share a lot of those uh, criticisms from the left that you mentioned. I, I, would, I would say that there has been progress and maybe that kind of, the, exact, the, the exaggerated aspects of that progress can, ser- can, can serve as a kind of warning flag for other countries that would want to go down the same road. Um, but uh, I, I think that Brazilian football has a lot to gain and almost nothing to lose from a massive restructuring. Tim Vickery, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Tim thinks that uh, overall having the Premier League there has been a, a net gain for football in England, which is why he'd like to see it, something similar happen in Brazil. There's no doubt that that needs to be restructured somehow. It sounds like uh, it sounds very unwieldy, to be honest. But what do you think about the Premier League and how that? That looks now twenty odd years on. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when you get down to it, I mean, it was it was a it was a real grab for cash by the by the richest clubs to to get make themselves even richer, and you can see why that was. You know, people were against that at the beginning because of. I mean, when you look at it in the Brazilian case, the problem is, as Tim was saying there, that the that the status quo is so bad that 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 a word like say democracy, say everyone is in favor of democracy. 
aren't you? A big fan. Yeah. But that it's a, it's a kind of an empty label which disguises a, an ugly reality, you know, of, of like rotten burrs, you know, uh, these little uh, state uh, FA presidents propping up their power um, by sort of dominating all of these essentially tiny and irrelevant uh, clubs um, it, it, in order to sort of secure their own power base for their own interests rather than for the interests of the game as a whole. And you've, when, when it leads to a situation where you've got chronically bankrupt football clubs in a, in a club or football, a, a country rather where football is by far the biggest sport, so that you've got these sharks who can move in and essentially interpose themselves between the clubs and the only real source of money that they've got coming in from outside and then take that money. That's not a good situation. That's something which is clearly not good for the, the game. Maybe a little bit of um, authoritarian socialism uh, is what the game needs, uh, along the lines of you know the NFL. I mean, mm. the, the most uh, communistic enterprise in the United States. Well, on the US sports theme, US Murph features heavily in show one that we have out today. We're speaking about Derek Jeter, not NFL at all. Uh, one of the most legendary Major League Baseballers of the last number of years. Played over 20 years for the Yankees and managed to somehow stay squeaky squeaky clean within that time. That ended up being quite a large part of the conversation. Shane Horgan and David Wallace previewing Munster and Leinster and Jackie Tyrrell. I already bigged that one up a little bit earlier on. You can have a listen to him in all the usual ways. You can check out our website also at secondcaptains.com and follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains. That's it from us. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.